Hello, y'all, and welcome to the Bible Bitches podcast, where we talk about biblical and religious topics from a feminist, comedic perspective. I'm here with Sarah Hoff, an awesome agnostic living in L.A., California. And I am here with Laura Barclay, who's a Baptist minister located in Louisville, Kentucky. And today we're talking about Judith, a badass lady who straight up murdered a dude. So Judith said no to her oppressor very intensely. Um, And this story kind of turns into like a Tarantino revenge film. And I don't know that there's going to be a lot of arguing on this. There might be. We'll see. We'll see if there's a little surprise argument in here. I think there's some things to talk about with her. There's some cool stuff. And then there's some maybe problematic stuff. So um, we'll see if an argument erupts. Who knows? Yeah. I did read like one good article um about hold on, let me see if I can find it. But it was about like um it was actually more of a critique of authors writing about Judith rather than about the text itself. Her argument oh. is that Judith is um you know a very complicated figure and that um a complicated figure that has been used by many different sides to like support their own point of view while ignoring significant parts of the story. Yeah. How that's like not doing justice to the story and not doing justice to the reader and like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I feel like, uh, you know, and if an argument doesn't erupt, I feel like we haven't, we haven't had a nice little debate in a while. So maybe you can just be like, Hey, Hey, Laura. And I'll be like, what? And you'll be like, suck it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say something super inflammatory. I'm going to be like, you know what? I think I will vote for Trump. Oh, God. Ah! It will murder me. <laughs> no, it won't, because I know you don't mean it. <laughs> I'm going to do that thing that, like, every dad did last last election, which was like, you know, I don't want to vote for Trump, but... Uh, uh. And then you're like, fuck you. Oh, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> not, no. Just not. You guys know. Okay. So the book of Judith was probably written towards the end of the second century BCE when the descendants of the Maccabees, this is the family who revolted and won independence uh, for uh, Israel against a real asshole oppressor named Antiochus Epiphanes. And the Maccabees were ruling Israel. Um this would explain why the tone in the book of Judith is pretty nationalistic, right? It's pretty like, rah, rah, let's go Israel. So that's, that's the kind of the background. Yeah. And um, honestly, like this book might not actually be familiar to you because it is only included in the Roman Catholic Bible. It's in the Protestant Apocrypha and, but it's not included in any of the, in, in, in the Hebrew Bible. And the structure of the book is sort of a historical narrative, although it's pretty obviously fake when you delve into the facts. For instance, we are told Nebuchadnezzar is ruling over Assyrians, but he was actually ruling over the Babylonians. And it's thought that this is an intentional literary device to equate Nebuchadnezzar with Antiochus Epiphanes, as they both are historical oppressors from different eras who screwed over Israel. And the book begins with a battle between Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm going to call him Old Neb for short. And a totally fictional Arfaxad of Medea, 
um, Old Neb wins and orders his general to go west. So this general, uh, Holofernes, um, Old Neb's general, besieges the fake town of Bethulia. Side note, Bethulia sounds a whole lot like the Hebrew word for virgin, so I'm sure there's like loads of meaning there. And Judith finally enters the picture about halfway through the book in chapter eight. And this would have been Nebuchadnezzar um, of the, as the book says, Assyrians, actually Babylonians historically, um, his general besieging a fake town in Israel called Bethulia. Okay, that's, that's the scene. And that Bethulia looks like it could maybe mean ver the, the term virgin. And Judith enters halfway through this book in chapter eight. Great. So Judith literally means, like the word Judith literally means woman of Judah or Jewish woman and echoes the name Judah, the Maccabean who led the revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. She's described as a beautiful widow of good character who rebukes those who want to surrender to General Holofernes. <laughs> she tells everyone she's going to do a great deed, but don't ask her about it and leaves for the Assyrian camp. That's like every time uh, Sarah leaves to go to the liquor store. <laughs> I can't deny that. <laughs> Like, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, so, yes, I mean, it seems kind of like everything is very mythical here, right? You've got the original baddie, right? The, the Nebuchadnezzar, you know, there's, there's songs written about this guy. He's a, he's a big old asshole. He's the, the kind of the OG oppressor of the, the Jewish nation. Um, and then you've got a woman named Judith, who literally means Jewish woman. So for this us, it might be like if a woman was named Americana, right? Like it's very, <laughs> you know, if it's like, uh, I don't know, who's like the, it's like Americana is going to go fight. No, I don't know. Isn't there an actress, an actress named America? Yeah. America Ferreira. Yeah. 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 She's cool. She's really cool. Um, but yeah, so this would be like if someone was named Americana, right? Like a woman named Americana was, was going to go fight, I don't know, an amalgamation of King George III and Osama bin Laden, maybe? I don't know. Like that's, I feel like this is kind of, so it's kind of a very mythical mashup um, in, in kind of, maybe kind of a fun way. I, I feel like, I don't know, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm off here, but that's, that's, as I read this, this kind of makes me think of what it would look like. Um, so Judith goes to the Assyrian camp and they let her in because she's hot. And also she promises to let them know how to best attack Bethulia. So no, maybe she's going to kind of turn tail and kind of be on our side. Right. Um, and also she's super hot. So we're going to let her in. She tells General Holofernes that the Jewish, uh, that the Jews food, their whole food supply is gone and that the townsfolk that they've been besieging are pissing off God by eating forbidden food. So they're not being kosher. They're not keeping kosher. So Judas suggests staying with General Holofernes in his tent, but going into the valley to pray uh, and to learn from God why the Jews sinned, right? So she's really kind of milking it. Like, oh yeah, I'm totally on your side. I'm just so offended that my people are sinning. You know, I, I've just got to go pray about it, right? So she's kind of set this up that, He's, and so he's saying, yeah, you can stay with me and I'll allow you to go down to the valley to pray, right? Yeah, and Holofernes agrees to this, probably because, you know, he's thinking with his penis, like we all have from time to time, and offers her food, which um, 
she won't eat because it's Gentile and she doesn't want to piss off God. Holofernes tolerates this, but on the fourth night asks her to drink with him. She agrees, gets all dolled up, probably putting those boobs on display, and goes to drink with him in his tent. But before long, like a douche, he passes out drunk. <laughs> We've all been that person. Don't, don't judge. We've all been that person. <laughs> Well, like, you've been that person, but you haven't been besieging a whole town, have you, while being that person? I mean, how else are you going to blow off some steam? (laughs) You're under a lot of stress. I remember, Sarah, when you besieged my apartment in Divinity School. (laughs) (laughs) did, many times. We were only able to escape when you passed out. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, okay, so Holofernes is passed out drunk. Um, and Judith wasn't really drinking. She was kind of pretending, right? So Judith takes this opportunity to behead General Holofernes after he's passed out in two strokes, only two strokes to remove his head, proving she is 100% badass and also 100% a terrifying date, like swipe left on Tinder. She leaves his tent pretending to go pray in the valley per usual. She set this up as her escape route, right? But she takes his head in a bag back to her village, Bethulia, that's being besieged, where she is praised above other women. Everybody's, you know, like, oh, my gosh, you're amazing. The Assyrian army panics whenever they find his dead body, and they're defeated. And an Assyrian guy named Akior converts to Judaism and is circumcised. I feel like that means you were all in, like totally in, if you're willing to be circumcised as an adult in second century BCE. That could not have been fun. Like, what is the process? <laughs> you, know, you know that got infected. Mm. Oh, man. That's uh, gnarly. And that's, that's the, you know, the, the interesting thing is, like, you don't really, I mean, there are other examples of people being considered, um, you know, righteous or good or whatever and not actually converting, you know? So, like, I don't know that he he was all in because he was yeah. willing to do the whole thing, so. Um, Judith leads all the women in a festive dance and the book ends with Judith's song of praise. And I'll read some of that uh, from Judith chapter 16 where she is basically her own hype girl, love. Can, can you read this to a beat, Sarah? A hot beat? No. For the Lord is God who breaks battle lines. No, uh, uh, no, we're not going to be doing that. I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I wish I could. I'm just not cool enough to be able to pull that off without sounding as cringy as I know I sound. It's just the truth. Can we all just agree? Fair. Um, So she says, um, for the Lord is a God who who breaks battle lines. He has pitched his camp in the middle of his people to deliver me from the hands of my oppressors. Assyria came down from the mountains of the north, came with tens of thousands of his army. Their multitude blocked the ravines. Their horses covered the hills. He threatened to burn my country, destroy my young men with with the sword, dash my sucklings to the ground, make prey of my little ones, carry off my maidens, the Lord Almighty has thwarted them by a woman's hand. For their hero did not fall at a young man's hand. It was not the son of Titans who struck him down. 
no proud giants made that attack, but Judith, daughter of the Merari, who disarmed him with the beauty of her face. She laid aside her widow's dress to raise up those who were oppressed in Israel. She anointed her face with perfume, bound her hair under a turban, and put on linen gowns to seduce him. Her sandals ravished his eyes. Her beauty took his soul prisoner, and the scimitar cut through his neck. Which, okay, a few things. One, sandals are super hot. We all want to get a good look at them toes. Have my sandals ever ravished your eye? Too many times to take count. Just, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed how many times I had to leave to use the bathroom. When <laughs> I'm so flattered. Yeah. <laughs> but also, like, like when so she beheads him with. I mean, it's essentially a sword, right? Yeah, I think she grabs his own sword when he's passed out, maybe. That would make the most sense, right? Yeah. And yeah. that's not like that's not an easy cut to make. You know, that's not that's not an easy thing to do. It's not like you see on like movies or cartoons or whatever where you can just go like plop and then the head drops. Yeah. It's it's a it's a it's a sawing action. So she'd been practicing. She probably been practicing. You know. She was ready. She, she's actually she's actually a serial killer. They just didn't have the term back then. <laughs> I, she had actually killed like forty people before that, and then yeah. they were like, "Oh, she killed the right one! Hooray!" <laughs> <laughs> Let's just ignore all these others. Yeah, they just like basically turned her and pointed her that direction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay, so my I'm just gonna go out on a limb. I don't think it was her sandal that ravished his eye. If you know what I mean, like damn titties. Always <laughs> uh, them titties. Damn titties. Um, but I like. There's I I like. It's kind of an awesome speech that she gives. I do. I I and uh, like. I get that it's the time, right? That you're like a woman. Get you know, like it was a woman that took him down. But like, I've seen Captain Marvel. Anyway. <laughs> 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 but at the time, I get it. Um. Anywho, she goes on, the Persians trembled at her boldness. The Medes were, Medes, the Medes were daunted by her daring. Uh, these were stuck with fear when my lowly ones raised the war cry. These were seized with terror when my weak ones shouted. And when they raised their voices, these gave ground. The children of mere girls ran them through, pierced them like the offspring of deserters. They perished in the battle of my Lord. I shall sing a new song to my God. Lord, you are great. You are glorious, wonderfully strong, unconquerable. Anybody but Trump 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Because I like how the kids in this story are basically all like from the Game of Thrones universe. (laughs) You know what I mean? They're all like super badass. Yes, like just Terrible. like a sea of Arya Starks running around. <laughs> <laughs> that would be terrifying as an adult. <laughs> so, so Judith lives to be 105, emancipates her maid, grows in fame, and no and no one bothers Israel during her lifetime, which is a pretty solid end, honestly. And the story is similar to the canonical book of Esther in that she's willing to go to bed with a Gentile for her people. 
but different in that Judith never, never actually has sex with a Gentile general and never has to violate Jewish law other than to lie to Holofernes and kill him. She keeps kosher and doesn't eat their food and continues to pray to her God. And there is a biblical precedent, actually, for women seducing and murdering Gentile generals, going back to jail in Judges 4 to 5, where she shelters General Caesarea and drives a tent peg into his skull. We covered that uh, last year in our Badass Women of the Old Testament in season one. So absolutely go back and check it out. It's a great episode. Yeah, it was, that was one of my favorite ones. Um, So yes, Judith's a hero because the survival of her own people was at stake. Uh, Scholar John Collins, whose book Introduction to the Hebrew Bible we used in research for this episode and also in our Old Testament class in Divinity School, notes, quote, that a woman performs this great deed accords with theology, the theology of the book of Judges, where God affects his deliverance through improbable means to show that it is not an achievement of human power, end quote. So this was probably not initially a feminist romp revenge story, but a, wow, God can save Israel through a lady story written by dudes. So there's some stuff you can, like, kind of, take from it and be like oh yeah feminist resistance but like maybe the initial intent wasn't wasn't quite as such yeah yeah and so and like and the book is blatantly nationalistic and the idioms suggest that it was composed in hebrew with the book being similar in spirit to the book of maccabees which celebrates militant jewish resistance against foreign oppressors collins um who we reference a lot uh, noted, it is widely supposed that Judith, too, is, a Mac- is in the Maccabean literature, written towards the end of the second century BC, when heirs of the Maccabees ruled Jerusalem. He also notes, it is ironic that they are in Roman Catholic Church's Bible and Greek Bibles, but not in the Hebrew Bible, um, though they are so pro-Israel. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of interesting, right? Because it is pretty nationalistic. So. Um... So yeah, it's, it's always interesting what makes it in and out of different Bibles. But So I'm tempted to say that it doesn't really matter what the intent was. Our cultural context needs strong biblical women currently. Um, this is a woman who slays her oppressor. And she does this and basically is like, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing and don't tell anybody I left. And then goes and does it, right? Um, so she goes and slays her oppressor. Uh, the oppressors may have changed, just like, <clears throat> the Israelites' immediate oppressor was not Nebuchadnezzar, but Antiochus Epiphanes at the time, but they equated the two together. And we can do the same. If our current oppressors are white nationalist, patriarchal douchebags, the resistance could use a lot of Judas if this country slides more towards authoritarianism and Nazi extremism, a la the early 20th century in, in, in uh, Germany. So I, I read this and think, you know, I think there's a lot to be said in terms of what is <clears throat> what is an author's intent when they write it versus the interpretation later. And I kind of tend to think that, you know, we interpret things in different ways through the ages. And once you write something and put it out there, it's not 100% your own anymore. It's, it's, a, it's open for interpretation. So, so I have a question. Yes. Um, is this where you tell me to suck it? Suck it. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> question. Will you suck it? <laughs> um, yes. No, that's not a question. That's a demand. Just <laughs> Bam. No, but for real. So like, um, just like with Nazi Germany and in this story, like at what point, at what point is violence a reasonable action? What, what point is violence a reasonable response? Is it ever? Because I mean, I think that some, I think that sometimes it is, even though like, that's a really, I think, tricky thing to say. And, um, and I'm, I'm not, I want to like caveat that a lot because it's blah, blah, blah. But how do you like, do like, do you think that violence could ever be an option and why or why not? Good question. Yeah, it's tricky, right? It's the threat. I tend to follow a lot of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said um, because, you know, I feel like, uh, I feel like we can, I don't have a lot of time for people who haven't been through the shit that, that are, that kind of talk in idealistic terms, right? So I, I tend to, I have a lot of reverence for people like, you know, Martin Luther King, right? Who went through um, with SNCC and uh, in the civil rights movement and, you know, made the decision to confront oppressors and, through strategic nonviolence, right? It wasn't just, hey, let's get the shit kicked out of us for no reason. It was, let's show people how, how, how brutal these, uh, you know, these Jim Crow white supporters are on a regular basis to the cameras, right? To turn, to turn the tide of public opinion. Um, That was a strategic move. It wasn't, I don't think it was nonviolence for the sake of nonviolence. It was strategic nonviolence. And also, and I think it was interpreting the turn the other cheek for a Uh, I don't think Jesus said, turn the other cheek and just like, let anything happen. I think it was turn the other cheek and expose the oppressor's brutality. I think that's what Jesus meant by that. Um, So I I view Martin Luther King's actions as being incredibly biblical, however you want to interpret that statement. Um, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it got to such a, a point in Germany where strategic nonviolence wasn't a... Uh, wasn't possible anymore uh, because, because, and I would say that a lot of this had to do with the, with the Christian church not stepping in sooner. I think there are things that the Christian church could have done sooner. I think there's things that the whole world community could have done sooner, but they, you know, was out on it and didn't, didn't do what they should have done. Um, but, and so it never, it never should, should have gotten to the point where it was, but I think that Dietrich Bonhoeffer found himself in a situation where he had to rethink a lot of stuff and said, Oh shit, you know, this we're solidly into world war two, you know, I I think his camp. uh, So, so for those that don't know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian and minister um, in Germany in the 1940s, 1930s and forties. And he was very disturbed by the, Com- co- how complicit most much of the Christian church was in Germany and certain the surrounding areas in the um, you know in in the violence against the Jews and 
um, LGBT people and Romani and other, other people that were not quote unquote Aryan. And so he was involved in one of the many plots to try to assassinate Hitler. And he found himself in a camp and he actually died. I think he was shot nine days before that camp was liberated. Mm. Um, so it was near the end of the war when he was killed. But he did not come to that decision lightly. And he wrote a lot from prison. And he wrote a lot before he went to prison. And, and his plot was, uh, you know, foiled. So I, I think that it's one of those things where you have to do a constant you know, violence is not something that I think any Christian or any person should enter into lightly. It's one of those things where it should be a, a last resort mm-hmm. once all other means have failed. And, and you know, you're, you're already embroiled in something like, you know, the systematic murder of people, you know, <laughs> Some, something terrible like that, yeah. which, and I, and I don't, I don't, I don't know what that looks like in any given context, but I feel like Dietrich Bonhoeffer was able able to identify it and say, you know, this this was right for me in this given time. And I think that's what people have to ask themselves. So I, you know, I, I of course don't think that we're close to that in the United States. I'm all about strategic nonviolence and civil disobedience and that. Um, so I would not condone any sort of violent act. Uh, I've been very heartened by, um, there was, this this last week there were raids, strategic raids against communities in multiple communities across the United States uh, for ICE raids to get undocumented immigrants. And there were a ton of them were foiled by just just citizens that surrounded these places hand to hand and said, You're not gonna get past me. And that's the kind of thing I think we should be doing right now. And, and just, you know, make them show their ass, you know, on, on TV and say like, this is happening all across the, the country in our towns. It's not even just on the border. It's, it's everywhere. And we should care. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's something that we have to constantly evaluate and it should never, ha- decisions like that should never happen in a vacuum. And I, that's something that I think Bonhoeffer now, Bonhoeffer was an organizer, and he was also deeply involved in the church. And I think um, you should never be on your own when you make those kind of decisions of, of should you be doing civil disobedience or should you be doing more intense stuff that, that should always be done in community and asking yourself some really tough questions about who's going to get hurt. Because a lot of times in violent situations, it's going to be more vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. And at that point in Germany all the vulnerable populations had already been rounded up and were, you know, in Gestapo's or at concentration camps. And so there was kind of nothing to lose at that point. Yeah. Um, right now, any, I, I believe that any, you know, we're, we're just so not, we're not close to that in terms of, yes, I do believe that there's concentration camps on the border, but I think any, anything, any act of violence done currently would just give Trump more ammunition to round up more people and, you know, do more and more stuff. Yeah. So right now it's all about civil disobedience and just always think about the greater good. What's, what's the best that we can do? What's the most loving thing that we can do? That's a long answer and a very complicated answer as I processed out loud. But. No, I mean, I think that that, I think that's right. Like, uh, that's, that is definitely like a last resort situation. Like nobody, I don't, I don't, think anybody wants to like 
immediately go to violence. Um, well, I mean, some people do, but, um, but it's also like, you know, I worry, I worry about that last resort idea because if it's last resort, does that imply that it's too late? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I have to think none, none, of, none of those plots to kill Hitler ever worked. Right, yeah. No. You know, I mean, I, I, and that's, that's, a, that's a good point, Sarah. I think, I think the things that did work were helping vulnerable populations escape or hiding them. Those were the things that were the most successful. That's why I think whatever anybody does, it can't, it can't happen in a vacuum. It has to happen in conjunction with, with those vulnerable populations and them leading. If, let's say, things get worse, right, in the United States, more and more people are rounded up, more and more children go missing, um, more and more populations are targeted. Um, whatever I do, whatever you do, whatever anyone does, I think should be done in conjunction with those populations that are being targeted. Like, what do you need me to do in order to advocate for you? Right. Yeah. Yeah. If that's hide you, if that's get you out, if it's whatever, but it's, I I can't do it because I, I think that, I think that if I just made the decision to do something or if I just talked to other white middle-class people you know, we could come up with something that's really disjointed and, and not, not well, and, or helpful. Yeah. Well, and also implicitly othering, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> Very white savior. Yeah. Right. And like, so, I mean, that's a good, that's a good word. I mean, who knows? I think, I think every, I, you know, I read, I don't, I don't know. Ultimately, I think, I think Bonhoeffer, I look at him as someone who was just trying to make it, you know, and yeah. and trying trying to do the right thing and it's in terrible times. And I think I I don't think that I would ever do anything without the leadership of uh seriously engaged folks in the um in vulnerable populations. And and I, I would I would always say do everything you can before it ever comes to violence. Yeah. It's just, I, I have not seen an example where violence ever, I don't want to say I'm a pacifist because I, I'm, I tend to not go to any sort of extreme. Um, and, and, you know, people might be like, well, that's not an extreme. That's just reasonable. Um, but I tend to not be just because I, I don't know if there's ever a situation where I, I would or would not, but I, I, you know, when I think resist in any scenario, I think, you know, bodies bodies you know in 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 nonviolent strategic civil disobedience situations white people or people that are you know for people that are white i think that means showing up and putting your putting your body at risk and in, in situations where there's um where you're actually protecting you know your your fellow people from getting deported or whatever um so I, you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near the headspace of violence personally, but I also just, I don't know. I'm just not an absolutist. I, 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 in my own way, I guess I like to be a little bit agnostic. Like I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't like, to, I don't want to just sign up for everything. I'm like, oh, I don't know at the end, you know, 
but by the time this podcast like actually wraps up you're gonna be totally an ag- agnostic wouldn't that be hilarious uh, two agnostics one in one in kentucky one in LA. <laughs> <laughs> that would be quite the twist would be spoiler <laughs> no but i i mean yeah i think that those are the you know it's tricky and also like there's an element of ideological difference there um and and like a statement of i think you know like how you're defining protection how you're defining who you're protecting and why you're protecting that like for some people they are they see their resistance or like their support of Trump to be like uh, protecting their own family. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas I see it as, you know, like giving our entire country a significant lack of general protection. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, and, and it's strange. It's strange. Those narratives, um, how, how they kind of play on one another because it's, it's similar, right? Like, um, they're, they're, they're both like based in a lot of fear, um, different kinds of fear, but based in a lot of fear based in like a sense of like wanting to protect what you see as, or like protect and love who you think deserves protection and love kind of thing. And, and so it's, so it's hard for me to, it's, yeah, it's hard for me to reconcile actions when it seems like we're when it seems like in a lot of ways people are approaching things with the same intention if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. and and it's just that how we do it is very different and in my opinion one's wrong and one's super right (laughs) and I agree (laughs) I just yeah I mean I guess I get really frustrated when I think about I don't know if it's generational or what, but like this idea of I'm doing things just for my family because I, I just think we're all so interconnected, you know? I mean, we're all so interconnected. This world is so interconnected. Creation is super connected. And like, which is why millennials and younger have such what anxiety about global warming because we're all so connected, so we should all give a shit. We should well, all give. Sure, but I, you know, it's it's fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating because, like, uh, it really is. You know, we were we were right on the cusp. It was like junior high, high school when internet AOL became a thing for me, right? Um, and that was a huge push towards globalization, towards like. I mean, there were already all kinds of things that were going on, like transportation becoming way more accessible and college becoming a thing. Um, all of these things like allowed for young people to move away from their homes and like away from their families and things like that. So there was already that like kind of idea of fracturing of the like nucleus and like going out into the world. But with this globalization and the internet and like the way that we're all connected now, it's so much more. And so I'm interested to see like what, how the narratives change going forward, because now it's, it's, you know, it's way less about 
being true to your like quote unquote family. And now it's like being true, you know, the narratives are now like being true to yourself. Like who, who are you? Like who, how can you be your best person? That kind of thing. And, and what does that mean? And then also like coupled with the, the like fear of growing up with global warming being like a real legit thing. You know? <laughs> and yeah. so, so I don't know. I mean like, and so that's kind of like way off topic, but it's, it's, I don't, so like, I don't, it's just, that's the whole deal. I'm so, I'm such a terrible arguer. Cause I'm just like, I don't know. No, I mean, I think, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's why we don't argue a whole lot because you and I, neither you and I, even though, you know, you're coming at it from outside of Christianity and I'm coming at it from inside ish, you know, inside, I am inside. I'm just like critical of it. Um, I feel like both of us don't really like to see things in black and white, you know, and, and, and that's, we've both seen the danger of that, right. From growing up very fundamentalist, you know, conservative, it's, it's, uh, it's very easy to other, other people. And, and we have to see all of us as our destinies are intertwined and interconnected on this planet for us to really be able to move forward and say, we're going to make it as a human race and as a planet, or we're just not. I'm not, I don't want to give up on this. Um, so right now, currently, there's a lot of Gen X's kids, you know, like the Gen X generation, they're the ones with the kids. Yeah. But millennials aren't having kids. No, I don't know why they would. It just seems ethically, it just seems immoral. Right. Like I, and I, and I struggle with it because I think, you know, I get why some people would, because they're like, maybe my kid's going to be the one that like, you know, I'm going to give my kid a science backing. Maybe, maybe my kid's going to be the one that like, you know, discovers how to turn, uh, the temperature down on planet earth. You know, I don't know, whatever, but, and I get that. Right. Um, but I also get why many of us are not I, I currently don't have children. Um, I I get why many of us aren't having kids, which is, you know, this kind of anxiety about the future and where we're going and resources and projections about resources in the future and what it would mean to bring a child into that. And I just think that, I just, I, yeah, I think that there's a complete disconnect from, from what, uh, older generations and and where where millennials at just because just because we have i think millennials have had the the rug pulled out from under us mm-hmm. in such a huge i know we're going on like totally an opposite tangent here but like just in terms of having started with you know the world is your oyster and you're you know you can be anything you want to be and everything's fantastic and you know being cognizant during the clinton years when the economy was great to oh my God, just sliding into despair ever since college. Yeah. Well, and honestly, like maybe it's not so off topic because like, what does that look like for future resistance, right? Like if the general population grows into a way that they understand the importance of like globalization and talking to one another and like the not othering the other, then is it possible for us to have non-violence reconciliation between countries that sounds insane to me oh i wish i feel like millennials and gen y's are 
I don't know. I feel like millennials and Gen Ys tend to get it a little bit more. Um, and, and Gen X is like 50, 50, but I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but you know, my question is like, by the time Gen X and, you know, millennials and Gen Y are in power, is there going to be enough time, you know, to, to like change the clock? Like, as as we're recording this, Boris Johnson is now the prime minister in the UK. And I'm like, how can it happen again? There's two of them. What? I know. I know. There's two what? of them. I saw that and I was like, oh, I do not believe this. I will not be able to process this right now. <laughs> I'm going to. The British fucking clone of Trump that is now leading the UK. And I can't. I can't. The most, ins- like, what is even happening? What My is happening in the world? Shriveled. Like, I can't. What is Um, happening? I don't know. Well, yeah, no. So yeah, I mean, I think the whole resistance question is so confusing to me right now because I'm just like, it's happening everywhere. Like this whole nationalistic thing. Like there's multiple countries that are going through what we're going through. We're just, we're just like the one of the most visible countries, I guess. The one that one of the ones that gets the most uh, press. Yeah. So. uh, I don't know. I like just give a shit about people and and show up. Like those are those two things. Give a shit and you show up for your neighbor. Like those are the things that matter. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's my that's my closing. <laughs> that's so eloquent, Sarah. Give a shit and show up. That's my that's my motto. Judas showed up. Judas showed up. You know what? She she showed up. She gave a shit about her people. She gave a shit about her people. She showed up and then she wrote a fucking song about it that I think was a banger. (laughs) (laughs) Was a clip. You know, her, she wrote a song. Didn't like, I want to think that like, um, Moses is, uh, didn't Moses sister write a song, right? Like, uh, right after like she, she got everybody to cross the Red Sea. They were like, I don't know about this. Like the Red Sea's parting. Should I? And then she's like, I got a banger. I got a club hit. And then she like sings it and they all cross the Yes. Yes. Yeah, right? Yeah. So like, I don't know. I think there's this theme of like these ladies doing some like justice and then dropping some club bangers. So. Well, and Mary had her poem. Mary. Yeah, that's right. Mary Mother yeah. of Jesus is like, let me talk about some justice. Yeah. I'm pregnant with this future savior or whatever. So like my thought <laughs> or or if you're agnostic, a human who was high profile, yeah. right? High profile. High profile. Yeah. Or aka high profile human. Um, <laughs> so like, yeah. I Sarah, maybe that so I'm gonna I'm gonna if I can admit my former statement, Sarah. Yes. Show up. A. Give a shit. B. Write a club banger, see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. I'm in for that. I'm excited to hear that club banger. Well, I'm glad you are because Bible Bitches announcement, we're dropping our first CD at the end of the year. No, that is totally false. Weird. Yeah. But maybe we will. Who knows? It's basically us just uh, like reciting from memory old Christian raps that we know. Mostly DC talk. All right, y'all. Thanks for hanging with us as we go through uh, the history of Judith and also brief existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, 
if uh, you're not sure how you found us and you want to come back to us, uh, hit that subscribe button on iTunes and Stitcher. And you can also hit us up on SoundCloud. And if you want to give us a story idea or just chat with us about your own experience, you can find us on Twitter at Bible Bitches or on our uh, fan page on Facebook, Bible Bitches. Um, sorry. Big shout out to uh, Engaged Gays for hosting us on their website. Um, you guys are amazing and we love pop theology. Um, also, of course, we love you, Aaron, at Aaron Doodles. Um, you know why, and it's mostly because we keep bugging you. Um, and, uh, and then of course, Yo Eves, uh, she's fucking fantastic. It's me, Miss Eves. She's just, you know what? I want her to write my club banger for me, uh, if she could. Yeah. Her club banger that I love is our intro and outro music, TNT. I, yeah, it's my, it's my heart song. Yeah. <laughs> Also, um, do I sound like the whitest person you know when I say club banger? Because <laughs> I know I do. <laughs> yes, and I love it, Sarah. I love it. I will dance with you in the club to the club banger. Yes. <laughs> all right. All right. We love you guys. Love you all. Join us next time. Bye. Bye.